Good morning. My name is Adam Venable, and my wife Lisa and I and our family are members here of Red Mountain Church. I'm also along with Amy Hudson, one of your missionaries over on the campus of UAB. It's great to be with you all this morning, and if I've never met you, I'd love to get to do that afterwards. But as I was thinking about the passage that we're looking at this morning, last night I saw a news magazine that my, our oldest, Eli, subscribes to. It's a news magazine for kids. And uh, they had a year-end review where they're looking back over all the stories from 2020. And of course, there's a lot there, a lot that happened in 2020. But one of the things that uh, it pointed out uh, was, th- this is the headline, it says, SpaceX sends astronauts to the ISS. And when I, when I saw this, I thought, did that, did that really happen? <laughs> This past year, because I didn't remember it. I remember there was a test flight or something back in May, but it says that in November 15th at 7:27 p.m., SpaceX, a rocket company, this is not the United States government, this is a private company, launched four astronauts into space uh, from the Kennedy Space Flight Center, and they they traveled 254 miles above the earth, and they landed at the International Space Station, and I just totally missed this, and of course, maybe that's understandable, again, a lot happened in 2020, but it just amazed me that this happened in our country, and it had just had not registered with me at all, and another similar story is about a man, a world-renowned violin player, and he has set up a little space in the subway, of New York City, I think it is, and he's playing on this world-renowned instrument. It's worth tens of thousands of dollars, and he's playing the most beautiful music ever written for this instrument there in the subway, and it's during rush hour, and there's hundreds of people walking past him, but no one stops. And what he is doing and the beauty of his music, it does not register with people. They just don't even notice it. And this theme actually shows up a lot in the Bible. In John chapter 3, you see Jesus and this religious leader named Nicodemus, who's a Jewish teacher in Israel. And Nicodemus and Jesus are having a theological conversation. And at one point, Jesus turns and he looks at Nicodemus and basically says, you're a teacher in Israel, and yet you don't know who I am? Nicodemus had not just read the Bible, but he had taught the Bible. But who Jesus is and the glory of his salvation, it just didn't sink in to Nicodemus. And the the book that we're looking at this morning, it is God wanting the glory of his salvation to sink in to our hearts and to our minds. God knows that we are prone, we have a tendency, we can be around the Bible and be raised in church, and yet who Jesus is, it just never really hits us and sinks into our hearts and minds. And so he's given us the Song of Songs and this passage that we're looking at. Uh, it's very graphic and uh, physical and sensual language because God knows that it's our, with our senses that we tend to, we see things and we smell things and taste things and touch things. And you know that because of Christmas, right? That's how you operate during Christmas time. You love it because you can see the Christmas decorations and taste those cookies and you can feel the, the, uh, the wrapping paper as you're opening the presents. And the Song of Songs is full of vivid, 
physical language like that because God knows that's how we operate and he longs for us to get the glory of his son, Jesus. And uh, so he says here in our passage, we're just looking at one, one verse. I'm going to read a couple of more, but he says, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I'm sick with love. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. And again, the Song of Songs, it is full of this vivid language that God has given us in order to help us to get the glory of salvation. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says this amazing thing. He says that the physical union between a man and a woman, the physical union in marriage between a man and a woman, it's meant to point towards something else, a spiritual union between that man and that woman. And then that spiritual union between the man and the woman, it is meant to point towards a greater union between Jesus and his church on earth. In other words, the earthly marriage, God says in Ephesians 5, is meant to point towards a heavenly marriage between the greater bridegroom, Jesus, and the greater bride, his church. And that's what Song of Songs is a picture of. Solomon was a king, a descendant of David, And he was a conflicted man because he did a lot of great things in Israel, but he also did some bad things. He he was not faithful to one woman. Song of Songs is about one man and one woman. Solomon had uh, 700 wives, 300 concubines. And you might ask the question, well, what gives? Why, Why is a man writing about one man and one woman when in fact he had many different women. And I think that's meant to teach us at least one thing, and it's this, that the longing that we have for love, it cannot be quenched uh, by any earthly man or any earthly woman. If Solomon had had 301 concubines instead of 300, that would not have quenched his thirst. didn't matter how many he had. And I think that's the main thing that this is meant to teach us. But I just want to talk uh, briefly about the banquet and the banner and then say a couple of practical things. The banquet and the banner and then say a couple of practical things. Um, The banquet. So verse 4 in Song of Songs, it happens in a section within the book that's all about the bride's longing for her bridegroom. The book is divided up into about six sections, and the first is the bride's longing for the bridegroom, and the next is the bridegroom's longing for her bride, and then the next theme is the loss of the bridegroom, and then another one is the return of the bridegroom. And Song of Songs is actually connected to your real life. One of the main themes of the book is profound loss and profound disappointment, and so it's not detached from your real life. But uh, the the woman, uh, in verse 3, she has sat down under the shadow of her bridegroom, she says, and she's eaten his fruit. And now it says that he, the bridegroom, brings her to his banquet house, his house of wine. Literally in Hebrew, it's, it's a house of wine, room for feasting. It was full of gold and everything in the banquet house was expensive, it was like walking into the most expensive house that you've, that you've ever been in. All the furniture was uh, 
overlaid with gold. The vessels were gold. The wine would have been stored there. The walls of the banquet house would have been decorated with these beautiful mosaics. And there would have been musicians on the balconies of this banquet house meant to entertain the guests at the party with music. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 4, the Queen of Sheba, God's word says, Queen of Sheba comes and visits Solomon, and when she sees the banquet house, it literally says that the Queen of Sheba said, there was no more breath in her. In other words, when the Queen of Sheba saw the banquet house, it was like she said, I am dying. This is amazing. What is that supposed to teach us? Remember, God says that the physical union between a man and a woman, the bride and the bridegroom, it is meant to point us to a greater bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and to a greater bride, the church. So what, what, what this is meant to teach us is that when we come to Jesus, when Jesus brings us into his banquet house, Jesus has brought us to a place that when you see it, our response should be, I, I am dying. This is amazing. This is more amazing than anything I've ever found. That should be our response when Jesus brings us into that banquet house. And the prophet Isaiah actually picks up on this language. This is what Isaiah, he's looking forward to the coming of Jesus, to the coming of the Messiah. And he says that there's going to be a time that all peoples are going to come to the mountain of the Lord. And the Messiah is going to come and there's going to be a feast with rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of well-aged wine well refined. Isaiah says that when Jesus comes, this is the banquet that he will bring. And the first great feast I can ever remember going to in my life, I was a junior in college, and I had just transferred from the University of Alabama to NC State, and I didn't know anyone. And I met a guy at church who was a grad student, so I thought he was really cool, he was older. And he invited me to this get-together that he was going to have over at his house. And I didn't really know what kind of get-together this was. I thought, yeah, you know, uh, you and a few friends, and we're going to hang out and watch a movie. I don't know. And so I get to this get-together, and I didn't know this, but he worked at Whole Foods. And so he got this amazing discount on all the best wine at Whole Foods and all the best cheese at Whole Foods and all the best desserts at Whole Foods. And I walk into his house, and there is people everywhere. And it wasn't too many people that you couldn't sit down, but, I mean, it was crowded. And there were bottles of wine, and there was all the best cheese. And it wasn't just on the dining room table, but he had, like, tables in the living room where there was more food on. And after five minutes of being there, I thought to myself, you know, what kind of friend is this exactly? I mean, what's the next get-together going to be like that we have? And when we meet Jesus, when Jesus brings us into his banquet house, our next thought should be, what kind of friend is this? What kind of place has he brought me to? And the amazing thing about Jesus' banquet house is that it is rich with mercy. His banquet house is lavish. The greater bridegroom 
loves to give away and to be generous with everything at his table. And he loves to sing over us the music of his grace and his mercy for people who do not deserve it. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says that God is rich. What is God rich in in Ephesians chapter 2? He is rich in mercy. As our greater bridegroom, he loves to give it away. And God wants to remind us of that here from the Song of Songs because we tend to doubt how lavish God's mercy can really be. I was reminded of this reading a book recently, Gentle and Lowly. Highly recommend this book. And the author at one point is describing our doubts about how lavish the mercy of Jesus really is. And he describes a conversation between the doubter and Jesus. The doubter says, you don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, the bridegroom responds. You know most of it, sure, and certainly more than others see, but there's perversity down in me that is hidden from everyone. I know it all, the bridegroom says. The thing is, it's not just what I've done in the past, but what I've done in the present. I understand, Jesus says. But I don't know if I can break free from this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I've come to help. The burden is heavy and heavier all the time. Let me carry it, the bridegroom says. It's too much to bear. Not for me, the bridegroom says. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed towards others. They're directed against you, Jesus. But I'm the one most suited to forgive you, Jesus says. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me and to my banquet hall, I will not cast them out. But there's more. The bride is delighted in her bridegroom, not just because he has brought her into this banquet hall full of lavishness, but also because he has raised a banner over her of love. And a banner is like a flag. And in Solomon's time, the banner was meant to represent warfare. The banner was something that was raised up after the warfare was over to celebrate the victory that the king had accomplished. Uh, Wherever the banner was, the strength of the army was there. The strength of the nation was wherever that banner was. And so when the woman says, you have raised your banner over me of love, it's like she's saying... My enemies had overwhelmed me, but you rescued me. It's like she's saying, I was overcome by fear of what the enemy might do to me, but you have used your strength to give me a place that's safe. And you and all your strength could have hurt me and cast me out, but instead you have used your strength in tenderness and in mercy, and in love. And you have raised this banner over me that says, I'm devoted to you, and I'm not going anywhere. Again, Isaiah picks up on this this language, God's promise to raise this victory banner 
to say that the warfare is over and I've been victorious. In chapter 40, Isaiah says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. What does that mean for us? What does this say about the greater bridegroom and his love for the greater bride? It means that when we were overwhelmed, it means that when we are afraid of not having enough money this year, or when we are afraid of what others think about us, that our greater bridegroom has raised a banner of love over us. To say, I have carved out a safe space for you. And my tenderness and my mercy is for you. It means that when you are afraid of how your children behave, or you're afraid how they're going to turn out, that our greater bridegroom has raised a banner of love over us. To say, all my resources and all my strength I've gathered them all and positioned them all to protect you and to draw near to you. And my banner over you is not, listen, uh, if you'll do these three things, I think you can really get on top of that problem with your kids. The banner over you is not, you know, if you will just do this, I think you can finally get that promotion. Or you, can, you know, if you'll just do this, you can finally weigh what you want to weigh and look how you want to look. That's not the banner that our bridegroom raises over us. It is a banner of love. And sometimes the most obvious thing is the thing that we miss. The banner of the bridegroom is what we need, and the banquet of the bridegroom is what we most need. What does that mean? It means that that house that you desperately want to move into, that's not the banquet. Or that neighborhood that you wish you live in, that's not the banquet. Um, your children acting up this way or that, that can't be the banquet. There can be only one banquet, and it's Jesus, and he secured it for us. How can you know if the bridegroom has brought you into this banquet? How can you know that? And the main way, I think, is how do you treat other people? Um, everyone has a dam that's ready to break in your heart, right? Your heart bursts forth like a dam. Things just come out of it. What bursts forth out of your heart? If you have known the lavish grace of the greater bridegroom, then what bursts out of your heart is mercy and kindness and rich generosity, even when other people don't deserve it. That's how you know that you've been brought into that banquet hall and you've seen it and tasted it. What if you have it? What if Jesus has never brought you into that banquet hall? Then what bursts forth out of your heart is that you're quick to judge and quick to lose your temper and you're quick to condemn others. And man, this really does a number on me because I, you know, I, I look at my own heart, I look at my own mind, and there are so many times when I am so quick to condemn and so quick to, to justify myself and to blame others. And 
If you're anything like that, um, what are we supposed to do? How can we enter the banquet hall? How can we experience it? And I would say two things. Um, There's two ways that Jesus brings us into his banquet hall. If you want to eat and drink and hear the music of it, how does he do it? The first way is through his word. Develop a strong habit of feeding on God's word. This is what Psalm 119 says. With my whole heart, I will seek you. I've stored up your word in my heart, and in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as rich food. In spending five extra minutes meditating on God's word, then there is five extra minutes of exercise. What if the discipline that you put into eating right and being healthy, what if there's even more joy in trying to be disciplined about staying in God's word? And uh, we're going to mess it up. I mess it up. I can't give you the perfect Bible reading plan. But if you want to If you want to enter into that banquet, Jesus wants to bring you into it. And the way that he wants to bring you into it in 2020 is by meditating on his word. And the other way is to participate in the Lord's Supper and in baptism. I came across this great quote from Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. And uh, Tolkien says, he's writing to his son, trying to encourage his son, Tolkien is. And Tolkien says, in the blessed sacrament, you will find romance glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves upon earth. And more than that, the only cure for sagging faith, sagging, fainting faith, only Tolkien could say it that way, the only cure for that is communion. Now, I don't endorse everything Tolkien said about the sacraments. He was not a pastor or a trained theologian. However, at this point, I think he is right on. He says that we'll experience romance when we come to the Lord's Supper. What does he mean by that? He means that the romance that's behind all the other romances, you know, the reason you love rom-coms during Christmas time, the romance behind all the other romances is the love and the tenderness and the mercy of the great bridegroom. And that he has given us bread and wine to experience that love and to, to, to draw near to him. And I realize that many of us are at home and we, we can't come because of COVID-19, many, many of us, and, and eat the bread and drink the wine. And man, what a great reason to pray for COVID-19 to be gone forever. Um, if you're at home and, and you can't make it to worship right now, Let's pray. Let's pray that COVID-19 would be gone and that we could gather together again so that we could experience the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace together. One more uh, practical thing. We don't always feel close to Jesus. You can read his word and participate in the sacraments. And you can cry out to him and call out to him. And the banquet hall still feels far away. And his banner of love, it's like you can barely even smell it. It feels so far. And 
I thought of a man that I had read about recently when, when I was thinking about this. His name is Samuel Rutherford, and he helped write our denomination theological standards called the, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And Samuel Rutherford experienced great pain and suffering in his life. His first wife passed away and all their children. He married again, and six of his children from his second wife all passed away. And that was not uncommon in the 1640s. The Samuel Rutherford suffered, but uh, we have a collection of his letters, and in those letters he's trying to encourage people, and he uses the Song of Songs all the time to encourage people about the love of Jesus. He says things like this. In these letters he says, Christ, nothing but Christ can cool our love's burning languor. O thirsty love, will you make Christ the well of life to be your head and to drink your fill? Drink and sp- drink love. Be drunken with Christ, he says. Now that's not language that I use very often. But how can Samuel Rutherford talk that way about his relationship with Jesus in the midst of such profound pain and suffering that he experienced? And uh, I think this is why. He says in one of his letters that the bare shadow of the banquet hall is enough for him. That if his soul can only have a smell of that house of wine, that is enough for him. That if he could just get a sight, just a distant sight of the banner of love that Jesus has raised over us, that that would be enough for him. Because one glance, one look from Christ is like the love from a thousand kingdoms, Samuel Rutherford said. Uh, Let's pray that we could just get a, 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 a smell of this banquet hall. Let's pray that Jesus would just, would just glance upon us and that he would fill our hearts until that day when we uh, are in a banquet hall full of wine and joy where we will always feel it when he returns, when our bridegroom shows himself to be the Lamb of God. Let's pray that he would do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do feel distant from you so often and like you're not near. And some of us have gone through the holidays feeling disconnected from others and lonely and afraid of what this year is going to bring. Jesus, we pray that you would give us a taste of your banquet hall, of your lavish mercy on us. And give us a sight of your banner of love over us. Uh, Sustain us and and fan the flames of our hearts. We long for you to return and to make all things new so that we can feast together in the house of Zion. We pray that, Jesus, you would sustain us with your glances until we do feast in that day. It's in your name we pray. Amen.